Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DOD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. Today's guest host is Major General Retired Larry Stutz Stutzream. So Stutz, it's always great to have you on the show. Hey Slick, it's a privilege to be here with you. Good to talk to you again, and I've got the stick. Copy, sir, you have the stick. Well, today we have the pleasure of speaking with one of the most key general officers in the Air Force. On the inside, we call him the A-8. But to you, he's the Deputy Chief of Staff for Plans and Programs for the Air Force, and it is Lieutenant General Rick Moore, and we're just happy to be able to talk to him today about the challenges he faces. He's tasked to resolve thousands of resource needs of the Air Force and assemble them into a path ahead, and that path involves trade-offs in the Department of Defense, agendas across the department, and even political agendas of the modern age. Nonetheless, he must meet the demands of programming and budgeting process across the Department of Defense, the White House, and Congress. So, General Moore, with great respect, we welcome you to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Dutz. Happy to be here, and I really am grateful for the invite from the Mitchell Institute. You bet. You bet. So, beyond what I just said, help our listeners have a, a little stage setting here, understand your role in the Air Force. What are your major responsibilities, and what's your annual cycle of effort look like? Yeah, you bet. So where we stand right now, we are working through the 25 budget cycle with Department of Defense. So we build the budget in five-year chunks. We call it the FIDEP, the Future Years Defense Program. And that five-year program that we're working right now, 25 through 29, is with Department of Defense. Simultaneously on the Hill, the bills for the 24 cycle, 24 through 28, are being worked. And we've we've seen all four of the base bills, and they're now headed for conference and eventually towards the Appropriations Bill and the National Defense Authorization Act. We will shortly transition to the 26 cycle, and we'll work that through the spring and then deliver that to the Department of Defense in the summer. So it's a it's not entirely unlike an ATO cycle. There are usually three budgets in the hopper at any given time. Our comptroller executes what comes back from the Hill. So the really the third budget that is in cycle right now is the execution year. Yeah, that's yes. FY23. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's handled by the comptroller. And of course, this is their busiest time of year as they approach the end of the fiscal year and, and close out. So in the eight, we, we build that five-year program. And then we also build the long-range plan for the Air Force. And that's year six through 30. So what we try and do is have a very high fidelity plan down to the budget level of detail for the first five years, and then a little bit less detail, but certainly to chart a path out to year 30. And ideally, that path will achieve the Air Force design that comes from the strategy and futures folks. Yeah, very interesting. And you've got lots of stakeholders uh, giving you inputs to this process, right? We do, and we're happy to have those inputs. We have input sources from the major commands, Uh, Of course, the Air Force Academy, all of the components of the staff. I'll tell you, Secretary Kendall is very involved in the budget process. Mm -hmm. The the resourcing strategy that supports his vision is keenly important to him, and he spends a lot of time and even at the detail level, a lot of energy on exactly what goes into the budget and also on the narrative on how we talk about what we've done and how we 
portray the future of the Air Force in a way that people can understand and that they can buy into. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate that insight. Let's uh, move into the grid of Air Force resourcing. We talk about this a lot on the podcast. The Air Force is in a tough position these days. Combatant commanders are asking for air power all the time. And often the demands on the Air Force exceed what the Air Force has available. And it's not like we can you know, ignore what's going on in the world. You think about the PLA right now, they are producing advanced aircraft and missiles while we have to see you know, a bit of shrinkage in the U.S. Air Force aircraft industry. And part of that is because of resources, You know, what we have to meet the growing demand. So how are you and how is the Air Force dealing with these historic challenges? So we we do have a historic challenge. We have not faced an adversary like we face today, certainly not across the distances like we will face in the China fight. You know, for folks that are in the military, we tend to be familiar. But for folks that aren't, when you fly from Washington, D.C. to Honolulu, first of all, you become very happy because you're no longer in D.C. <laughs> but second of all, you're only halfway to Guam. The theater that is the Pacific, if you think about it as a warfighting theater, is enormous. And so it is a historic challenge. Resourcing is only one part of it. You know, we've spent my entire career, I was I was a junior at the Air Force Academy marching to launch the first time we started to bomb Baghdad. My entire career has been shaped by counterinsurgency operations, and we've been focused on the Middle East. Right. And now as we come out of that and start to look towards a different kind of threat, a very different kind of threat, a much more difficult threat to confront, we have to make a pivot. Our force structure has to pivot, our airmen have to pivot, and our resourcing strategy has to pivot as well. And that that's that's a challenge, and we'll work through it. We've never given up on a challenge yet, and we're not going to give up on this one, but it is tough. That's great to hear. Well, let's talk about some of the uh, modernization. You know, there's concepts like collaborative combat aircraft being thrown around, joint all-domain command and control, and they all sound promising, but the proof is going to be in getting, you know, real-world results when all this is fielded. So there's some risk in these new concepts, even as you have to keep today's capacity, today's force structure healthy and ready to employ. So what, how do you handle that? How do you make sure that there's a good balance in the budget? Well, a couple of different parts of this. The balance in the budget is absolutely critical. We can't go all in on any one thing. And all in on any one thing includes keeping legacy force structure as well, by the right. way. Mm-hmm. Concepts like joint all domain, command and control, this is a revelation based on the theater that we're going to fight in and the environment in which we're going to fight. We believe we'll need to close thousands of kill chains in hundreds of hours, and you cannot do that by Merc Chat. It can't be done on the telephone. It has to be done with automation. It has to be done with machine-to-machine transition of data, and that's what joint all-domain command and control is all about. And it isn't just a concept. It's also a great deal of hardware and a great deal of software with a concept of, of operations overlaid. And so I think we have actually made great progress. I don't believe that that joint all-domain command and control or JADC2, I don't believe that's a theory anymore. I don't believe it's PowerPoint deep. Yeah. We can see actual manifestations of that. Uh, and the secretary would say his primary interest is meaningful capability in the hands of the warfighter as quickly as possible. He's not interested in experimentation. He's not interested in prototyping unless it leads to meaningful capability in the hands of the warfighter as soon as possible. The legacy legacy versus new force structure, that's a that's a more challenging puzzle. And we'll I know we've got a couple of minutes to talk about that here coming up, but that one that one becomes a little bit more difficult than something like JADC2, which is completely new and doesn't replace something old. It's it's added on top as a completely different way of warfighting. Well along with that, 
We saw a, an increased focus on munitions this year. And traditionally, we've used munitions, just as you said, in a lower tempo, less threatening world. We've used those munitions accounts to be pill pairs for other, other needs. But what we're seeing now in Ukraine, of course, as we pivot to the Pacific and see what it might take to deter and, if necessary, defeat Chinese aggression, those munitions are now pretty important. So what, what's the Air Force doing today to ensure we have those adequate stocks? Yeah, I think the days are long gone that the munitions account was a bill payer. I would say that sometimes the munitions accounts float with the top line. If the top line goes up, they tend to go up. If the top line comes down, they tend sometimes to come down. But there's, there's about $35 billion in the Air Force's 24 budget across the five-year budget horizon for munitions. It is anything but a neglected account. And I think what you can see is... Uh, we have moved away from basic munitions. We have even moved away from preferred munitions. And what we're now focused on are advanced munitions. If you want to confront an advanced adversary, you have to do that with advanced weapons. And so the kinds of things that you see us pivot to are JASMER, LRASM, JATM, the kinds of things that it takes to, no kidding, confront a high-end peer adversary in an AOR the size of the Pacific. That's great news, General. So let me seg back to fighter procurement back in the 80s. You know, President Reagan was buying somewhere upwards about 200 fighters a year or so. And this year, you know, just getting to 72 was a, was a, a big deal, important deal. And General Kelly at ECC has been pretty clear he needs more tails. But even at 72 a year, that still leaves us in a serious modernization deficit as we look to replace, you know, 1980s built aircraft. And demand's not going up, like, like I said earlier. What's your thinking on the overall fighter modernization plan? Yeah, so the purpose of the modernization plan is not to hit any particular number of tails, but it is to bring down the average fleet age. Our average fleet age right now is about 29 years. We all think that that's too old. I don't know that anybody believes that 29 years is an acceptable average fleet age for a high-end fleet. And we also need to increase the capability of the fleet that we have. And so that's what we're really focused on. We have to, if we want to confront an advanced adversary, do that with advanced weaponry. And that means we need to bring on modernized aircraft. You know, the, the A-10s have serviced, served us extremely well. The A-10s were built in the 70s. Fighting China with A-10s now would be the equivalent of fighting Desert Storm with P-51s. When you think of it in those terms, it is obvious that we need to move to the future. And it's not a slight against any particular legacy airframe, the A-10 included, but it is a very real look at what it takes to fight Chinese aggression in the Pacific. And, and I'll echo Secretary Kendall's comments from, uh, from earlier this week. War in the Pacific is not inevitable, and we do not desire to fight. But if we're going to, we're going to win. Yeah, well said. Well, talk to us about the cost of the aging inventory you, you, you're talking, you know, need, and the need to bring down the average age. You know, these jets are, are still operating. They do their job, but they're well past their design lives. That comes with a major sustainment bill, I, I assume. And we had a Congressional Budget Office report that said, hey, it's a factor of about 3 to 7% per year, the increase in cost of keeping an airplane just because of its, of its aging. So you basically have the old competing with the new. And help us understand the scale or scope of the sustainment challenge right now. Yeah, this, this is a challenge. It's a challenge for the sustainment enterprise. It's also a challenge for the resourcing enterprise. So our weapon system sustainment account uh, runs about $19 billion a year. And as you mentioned, the cost of maintaining old aircraft goes up. And that doesn't mean 3 to 5 to 3 to 7%, including inflation. 
That's in addition to inflation. And Mm -hmm. so what we find is that this large account, nearly $20 billion a year, grows faster than the rate of inflation. I'll give you a tangible example. The youngest KC-135 we own was made in 1964. Six years ago, when KC-135s went into the depot, we could count on about three major unscheduled maintenance actions that would have to be performed, things that they found of of a large nature as they took the airplane apart to do depot. Now it's eight. And so... Airplanes are showing their age, and what we what we need to do, as you mentioned, is get to a set of fleets that is not well past their design lives. Right. 44% of the fleets we have in the Air Force are past their design lives, and we continue to operate them in challenging environments at a high tempo, and we're working them hard. They are showing their age, and that manifests itself as cost. Yeah, and, and some of the demand on these airplanes, you know, because there is such a high demand, I mean, they wear out faster, right? They do. We've certainly seen that with the C-17 fleet as we flew. We flew it like crazy in support of of recent combat operations in the desert. We flew them at about twice the programmed rate, and they are showing it. And by the way, accelerated use of aircraft doesn't just manifest itself in terms of resources. It also manifests itself in terms of reduced aircraft availability. So not only are they more expensive to maintain, but they're less available to a warfighter. Right, right. Well, let's move to the bomber fleet and talk a little bit about bombers. You know, that's Bombers are all about bringing a lot of strike capability, long distance to do damage to an adversary. Knowing that we can do that certainly deters folks out there who might have some bad motives. Well, the Air Force has seen a reduction in bombers since the end of the Cold War also, but now demand for range and payload is really on the rise, especially as we look to the Pacific. Uh, it's just a no-brainer for the Pacific challenge. We need bombers. So at what point do we really start thinking we got to keep our bombers, they need to be replaced one for one and not go any lower than we have right now? Yeah, so I, I think the uh, the bomber equation, it, it is, as you described, one of the more important facets of this. If you go back and look at World War II, though, if you really want a powerful example, it was common for 8th mm-hmm. Air Force to put up put up formations on a given day of over a thousand bombers. That's not the world that we still live in, but mass is important. And and the quantity of munitions that we can put on a target in a, in a fairly short period of time, it matters. Nevertheless, as you know, the B1s, that program was a Carter era program that was resurrected and put into procurement by Reagan, just keeping them until we can replace them one for one with B21s. That isn't necessarily a pathway to success. The aircraft availability in that fleet is quite low, and that fleet is showing its age. We need to transition to a two-bomber fleet that will be modernized B-52s and B-21s, and we're doing that as quickly as we can. The divestiture of the B-2s and the B-1s is tied to performance and procurement of the B-21. So as it comes online, you'll see the B-2s and the B-1s make their way out of the fleet. What number we will actually build to is interesting. We will buy at least 100 B-21s, and then we'll have to see the decision point for whether or not we go past 100 is several years into the future. But I do do agree with the premise. I would also say part of what we're attempting to do is look at some longer-range munitions so that so that aircraft other than bombers can deliver them and look at a different way of delivery. We've looked at palletized munitions that can be delivered out of a C-17 or a C-130. There are lots of different ways to solve this besides simply keeping old bombers. Yeah. No, we're looking forward to the B-21. It can't come too soon. Agreed. That's the way we see that. Well, General, another issue facing the Air Force right now is, I'll just one example, you know, we used to talk about how little our adversaries over in the Pacific were flying in terms of hours per month. And our air crews today, although they have incredible technology, 
and they're incredibly disciplined and well-trained. They're, they're not flying the hours they might need. Overall, that's just one example, but overall, how are we looking in terms of readiness for the U.S. Air Force? So overall, we would certainly like our readiness to be higher, but I think the question you have to ask is ready for what? And this is back to a high-end adversary in a very large area of responsibility. Making our entire force ready for that is a challenge. When you look specifically at the Flying Hour program, uh, it is a large account. It's about $8 billion a year. And like the other large accounts, weapon system sustainment and personnel and military construction, it grows faster than the rate of inflation. There is pressure on this account. And the amount of flying hours that we have in the budget, it doesn't meet the requirement. However, the concept of high-end training for a high-end adversary isn't solely reliant on flying an airplane in the air. There are things that our advanced weapon systems can do that we will never do in, in live fly scenarios because we don't want those things to be seen. Yeah. We've gone from a time when you practice procedures and low-end kind of repetitive things in the simulator and high-end training and maneuvers in the aircraft. It's about swapped. The really high-end stuff happens in the simulator because that's where you can use all of the different features of truly advanced aircraft. And what happens in the aircraft is airmanship and the kind of lower-end things that we used to do simply in the sim. It's been an interesting transformation. I don't know that we have the balance right, and I certainly know that the number of flying hours in the budget is not what we desire. But there is a lot of augmentation that goes along with those flying hours that I think has to be counted when you talk about readiness. Yeah, if I could uh, just uh, give you this anecdote from yesterday. I was talking to an F-35 uh, pilot who's, by the way, a fellow with us at Mitchell here this year, and he was talking about how easy it is to learn to fly the, the stick and rudder skills, so to speak, the F-35, and and the the incredible load it takes and time it takes to really master the systems and use them effectively. So I kind of get their message there, how that's flip-flopped. You bet. Yeah. Well, it's not just about aircraft, you know, bombers and fighters. Uh, we need to ensure we have enough air crews to fly the jets and, of course, maintainers to keep them flying. And people cost money, too, General. Uh, it's Is that understood well on the Hill? And, and how do you articulate the importance of the human resource? Yeah, I think the place where this plays out most profoundly on the Hill is when we, we get restricted from divesting legacy force structure. There are dollars associated with that, and we absolutely need to repurpose those dollars to the future. But much more profound is the impact on the human capital. There are only so many maintainers in the Air Force. The more of them that are maintaining A-10s, the fewer of them are maintaining F-35s. And we have to transition our, our airmen from the past to the future, or we will not be able to sustain the things that are in our budget that we're looking to buy by the end of the, the budget horizon. So there, there's this thought that, well, if, if, if you need airmen, we'll just add money to the budget for airmen. It's quite not that simple. Yeah. We will miss our recruiting target, the active duty Air Force, for the first time this year by about 10%. First of all, just adding budget money doesn't necessarily mean that airmen arrive. If we're not recruiting to the number that we have already, right. we're not going to recruit more than that just because we have more money. And yeah. second of all, it is a problem with pilots. It's a big problem with maintainers. It takes 15 years to make a 15-year maintainer with 15 years of experience. And that is where you get the ability to operate in a difficult environment, maybe on the fly, with not exactly the perfect setup that you would like. You've got to have 
deep experience in in the maintenance bench. And we've got to start moving our experienced maintainers out of the past into the future. It is imperative. In fact, it may be in legacy divestitures a more important facet of that conversation than dollars. Yeah, that's very interesting. You know, you think about a couple of career fields that, you know, it's decades over decades, they've developed their their skill set, their uh, tactics, the way they bring their folks up. I think of battle management. I think of RPAs. It's not just a spigot you turn on and off. I mean, that that's a lot of uh, valuable cultural knowledge base that you have to preserve and transfer somewhere else, right? I couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's take another rail and jump off airplanes and bombers and talk about nuclear deterrence and readiness. The Air Force is responsible for two legs of the nuclear triad and a significant portion of NC-3, the nuclear command and control uh, system. It's essential, and there's a major requirement for investment in this, and it's all facing you at the, all, all at one time. What's the challenge there? Is this going to work out? It is going to work out. The challenge, I think, is the margin. We have very little margin in the transition from the legacy nuclear enterprise to the future. And this is not just in the Air Force, it's also in the Navy. And so the programs that we have, they have to perform because there's there's not a lot of margin left in the in the, the transition. And that right. risk is one that we look at constantly and we look at ways to buy down that risk. And I think where we sit right now, we have a, a pretty good balance between uh, the programs being properly funded and risk that makes sense having been bought down And I see the transition from Minuteman 3 to Sentinel as an example. Uh, I see it with little margin, but I do see it working, and I do see it being effective, and I see both of those weapon systems properly resourced to make that happen. The peak of the nuclear enterprise is somewhere in the later part of the current budget horizon. It's somewhere in 27, 28, 29 timeframe. So that's late in the 25 to 29 cycle. Once we get past that peak, I think we'll we'll be in a position, first of all, to repurpose resources away from nuclear modernization. All of this had to happen at the same time, the air leg, the sea leg, the land leg, and nuclear yes. command control and communications all at the same time. Right, right. We can see the peak of that coming, and as it marches across the budget horizon towards the budget year, uh, we'll, be, we'll be in good shape on the backside. And I see these transitions working out, but I don't see there being a lot of margin. Yeah. You know, there was a, a lack of emphasis on this modernization for a long time. What's your reading on, is the Hill tuned into this? Are they ready to, you know, sustain the funding and make sure we, we do modernize the nuclear enterprise? Well, certainly the last several rounds of, of budget bills would indicate that they are. And it's not this enterprise that had a little bit of a procurement holiday. The reason we're having challenges like 29 years average age in the fighter fleet is because we, as we came out of the Cold War, the procurement accounts all became dramatically smaller, and we're trying to grow back from all of that. It's not just in the nuclear enterprise, yeah, to be yeah. sure. No, well said. So let me throw something on the table at you, General. And here at Mitchell Institute, we talk about this a lot because we're tremendous advocates, of course, of what you do. In terms of real funding, the Air Force has been funded less than the Army Navy for about three decades. And some of that is very understandable because of where the focus of uh, operations have been. But I, I, I would argue, just like you just said, that, that you know, that's really put most Air Force modernization behind, if not all. And so we get to the point where we're at today with really you know, a crunch in, in, in doing all these programs at the same time. But how do you how do you deal with that message? And is there a way that the proportion of the defense budget could we could see it coming more towards the Air Force, at least a a a a, a new prioritization in direction of modernizing air power? 
Yeah, I think as we've seen the top line grow over the last couple of cycles, we've seen uh, a somewhat disproportionate share of that come to the Air Force. And I think you just have to ask yourself the question, what fight do you want to tool for and what does the force look like that will prosecute that fight? As we went into counterinsurgency warfare from about 2002 until about 2020, we spent $1.7 trillion of overseas contingency operations dollars. About $1.1 trillion of that went to the Army. We tooled for the fight that we faced. We now face a different fight. The question is, what will it take to tool for that fight and what transitional resources needs to happen? Yeah. So there's uh, a number of realities in 2023 and looking ahead up on the Hill. What about the budget deal this year? Can you talk a little bit about that and what are the impacts of the caps that are coming with that? Sure. So I can talk from the Air Force perspective. You know, the, the Fiscal Responsibility Act, it set the transition from 24 to 25 at an increase of 1%. What we had built in as we built the five-year program from 24 to 28 was an increase of 2.1% per year. So the top line in 2025 will come down by 1.1%. That was the only year that was covered by the Fiscal Responsibility Act. What happens as we go forward, that, that will be up to the Congress. That's their purview. But in the year 2025, the Air Force's budget will be about $2 billion less than what we had planned for. And we're working through right now what $2 billion worth of content will come out to meet, to meet the restriction of the Fiscal Responsibility Act. And we will, we will comply with that, with that law. Yeah. Hey, we just had the Aerospace and Cyber Conference and the secretary was very adamant talking about continuing resolutions and other budget things that could really affect the service. How do you explain the continuing resolutions and the impacts that can happen in terms of running counter to the urgency of modernizing the Air Force? All continuing resolutions are bad. It's a terrible way to manage a fiscal program. Longer continuing resolutions are terrible. And I think this year, the biggest risks that we see, first of all, the risk of a government shutdown appears to be becoming potentially real. We're very yeah. concerned about that. Yeah. Second of all, the risk of a continuing resolution, I, I think that that is very real. The challenge because of the Fiscal Responsibility Act is in the event that all 12 bills aren't passed by the 31st of December, on the 1st of January, the budget is set at the FY23 level minus 1%. The difference in what we plan to and the, what the president submitted in the president's budget to the Hill and 23 minus 1% for the Air Force is $12.7 billion. We will comply with the law if we have to, but I don't foresee uh, a way of doing that at this point. We have a lot of work to do if that is the scenario that we find ourselves in. Yeah. Boy, you talk to risk a lot, and you articulate it very, very well. Is is the risk we face in terms of air power, you know, not being there sufficiently to support, you know, overall joint warfighting operations— is that something that is easy to communicate to our lawmakers up on the Hill? Um, or do you think you're effective at that? I think they understand the issue. They're very, very smart people, and it, it's, not, it's not a challenge uh, to help them understand the issue. I think where it becomes a challenge is in terms of timing. This is, this, we, we do not view, as Secretary Kendall said earlier this week, that conflict is imminent. In fact, we don't even believe it's inevitable. Mm -hmm. But certainly it isn't now. And... The, the lawmakers on the Hill tend to focus on things that need their attention now yeah. because they have, limited, they have limited bandwidth. And so they tend to focus on the here and now. And this conflict is not here and now. We know that if we don't do research development and test and evaluation, if we don't get programs ready to go, we will not be able to recover that time. 
but it isn't a right now pressing problem. And so I think that's where we where we have to do good work is to to make sure that they understand that the time that we lose is actually time ceded to China, and we do not want to do that. Well, the Air Force is looking ahead to whether it's going to be forever dependent upon pilots. Uh, but we know the uh, the way to get to that future that some people talk about is this mixing of both manned and unmanned aircraft, the crewed and uncrewed systems. And right now, collaborative combat aircraft is a big topic. And uh, just recently, in the last couple of weeks, we've heard senior leaders in the Department of Defense even uh, make some proclamations that are pretty impressive. Where do you see uh, in, in your world the programming going? Is this a serious move into the future? Uh, is it all just R&D or are we going to see something in this decade or, or close uh, behind that uh, where we're going to see some pretty amazing things with crewed and uncrewed systems? Yeah, sure. So from a budget perspective, this is a very serious issue of the secretary's operational imperatives within the U.S. Air Force portfolio. The single largest investment was in collaborative combat aircraft. We are very serious about this. This is not something that we're admiring from afar. And the premise was the question, if you want to confront a high-end adversary, if you want to deter and if necessary defeat Chinese aggression, and you want to do it in an area the size of the Pacific, what kind of mass does it take to do that? And do you think you'll be able to create that mass if it's based on F-35, F-15EX, NGAD, and B-21? The fact of the matter is it's probably not ever going to be affordable to build the size of force it takes Mm. with those components. And so how to bring down the average cost, how to create affordable mass, and that's where CCAs come in. The technology has not been around for very long that would even allow us to do this, but we do believe that it's here now. And so we have an opportunity to change the average cost of the fleet that we think it takes to confront China. We're really excited about this, and we do envision there being hardware on the ramp by the end of this decade. Yeah, that's that's exciting to think about. Well, we've got to get you back to the Pentagon, where I know you love to dwell. And I've one last question. It's kind of, I'll just throw it at you. And, you know, if we were on another planet and the Congress reached out to the U.S. Air Force and said, hey, we'd like to give you another $15 billion a year throughout the FIDEP, where would you put that money? Well, I think what you would have to consider is whether or not you want to add to the modernization portfolio or whether you want to build up in some of the foundational accounts like we've discussed, weapon system sustainment and flying hours. And so the modernization portfolio, the support for that would be there are things that the Air Force must do. The, d- the Joint Force depends on us for things that that would need to be resourced and that would be a great place to put $15 billion a year, and there certainly are more requirements than that. So you could very easily invest $15 billion a year in additional modernization so that we could provide to the joint force the capability that they count on the Air Force to provide. You could also assert that the Flying Hour program is under-resourced, that the Weapon System Sustainment Program, especially as it grows faster than inflation, is under-resourced, and that some of the airmen that it takes to do both of those could use some additional resourcing as well. There's more than $15 billion a year of requirements there. So rather than say, where would I put $15 billion a year, what I would say is $30 billion a year would go a long ways, and it would allow you to get after both. Wow. That's great. Well, General Moore, you are the right person in the right place at the right time. Thanks for your incredible insight and forthrightness. You have a great team and 
please pass our compliments to them. Thanks for your time today. Yes, that's I appreciate it. And you know, it's it's all the team that makes this happen. And I'm, I'm grateful to have perhaps the highest performing team in the Pentagon. And that's what gets me up every day. So thank you for the time. And thanks for the invite. Look you forward bet. to seeing you again soon. You bet. Right on. Thanks. Well, that was a great discussion. And that's all we have for today. Back over to you, Slick. Stutz, thanks so much for hosting General Moore today. We really learned a lot. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.